the letter of James, today we've, we've titled or subtitled it, Fulfilling the Royal Law. Um, James addresses, well, let me just back up. Because it's been three weeks since we've, because we had, uh, we had something else. I don't know what, but anyway. Oh, anniversary Sunday. Uh, because it's been three weeks, just a little bit of a review. Starting with uh, chapter one, uh, James addresses these folks uh, and, and instructs them to count it all joy when they face various trials. We understand this letter was written to the 12 tribes of Israel, and these, these folks were scattered all over the region, and they were experiencing problems, persecution, issues, and these issues caused other issues, uh, many of them interpersonal issues. And James is writing this letter trying to head off at the pass uh, I watched westerns when I grew up, you know, uh, but I still watch them when they're worth anything. Um, but he's trying to head off at the past the issues that they were dealing with. And de- but he be- we, we talked about he starts the very first thing right out of the gate. Count it all joy when you go through various trials. He didn't say if, too. He said when you go through various trials. And then he, he, ta- he revealed that that testing makes us steadfast. You'll never be steadfast in your faith unless you've been tested. Someone said one time that you don't really have faith until that faith has been tested. I mean, that goes back to sort of like if the tree falls in the forest and nobody's there to listen to it. I don't know how all that works out. But testing makes us steadfast. And then he addressed the need for wisdom in the midst of the testing. When you're going through the tough times, when you're going through the difficult times, you, you cry out to God. He said, if you don't have wisdom, ask God. He'll give it to you. And because you're going to need it in that course, if you don't have wisdom in the moment of testing, you're going to go somewhere you didn't want to go. Talked about the blessing comes from remaining steadfast under the trial. And then he, then he went into receiving the implanted word. You, you folks are different, he's saying to them and to us. Receive the implanted word. Hear the word. Receive the word. Obey the word. Allow the word of truth to have its complete work in you. He talked about the outworking of godliness. Pure religion is to take care of the widows and the orphans, keep oneself unstained from the world. And so the, the whole letter is in that context of these folks. And this is no different because now that we're moving into chapter 2, he's dealing with relationships. He addresses the brothers and sisters in Christ about interpersonal relationships that are going on because he's writing because there's an issue. And when we get to chapter 4, we're really going to see him spell this out pretty clearly. But right now, we're just going to stay right here in chapter 2 as he is addressing this issue. And, and while a lot of what he says can be a, a addressed or applied to anyone, I think he's specifically talking about our dealing with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. I don't have a slide, but Galatians 6.10 says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. Is that good? Y'all like that? And especially... 
Do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. And so while we are called to do good to everyone, we start in the household of faith. And the fact is, if you can't do it in the household of faith, you can't do it to everyone. That's the way it works. And today we examine the true basis of those relationships, the relationships that we have. Um, Human beings, we as human beings possess, we possess a relationship to one another and to God that no other creature has. I know a bunch of y'all are animal lovers. I love animals too. Fried chicken, ribeye steak. (laughs) But it doesn't matter how much you love animals. They cannot and do not have the relationship with God that you do. It's not going to happen. And so we need to understand the uniqueness of who we are and who we are with God and who we are with one another and and look at that relationship. And then we will, the, the crux of our message today is that our actions are graded in light of the royal law as described by James as we get into the text. So speaking of the text, we're going to go to James chapter 2, and I'm going to read the first 13 verses. Uh, If you would stand with me while we read the Word of God, and I'm going to be reading uh, from the English Standard Version. My brothers, and again, uh, the word there is, uh, the Greek word actually means brothers and sisters, so it's not gender-specific. Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who were poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture... You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery, he also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. You may be seated. We begin talking about our actions towards God's people. He uses the word in this version, partiality. The New American Standard Bible and some other versions will use the words there, 
personal favoritism. In other words, if you have, the New American Standard actually puts in there, to have an attitude of personal favoritism, the, the have an attitude is in italics, which means it's not in the original text. So you could drop that out and just say if you have personal favoritism or you, you issue partiality, uh, this is the issue. And, and it's interesting, he says, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. What he's saying is those two don't go together. You can't put those two together. If you, you In your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, there's no room for you to show personal favoritism. An empty religion will betray itself in relationships. Now, you, you remember uh, three weeks ago we read the end of chapter 1, and, and I'll do that again, but I want to, this is echoing as I'm seeing this, religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and keep oneself unstained from the world. An empty religion will, will betray itself in relationships in light of chapter 1, verse 27. Because if we, if we have, quote, empty religion, I, I really hate using that word, but I don't know a better one right now. If we have an empty religion, then there's something missing and we're malnourished in our faith. And so we can't even say faith. And he's dealing with, ultimately, and we'll get to that, but he's dealing with on what basis do we relate to one another? What basis? Erasmus uh, was, was a... Uh, Catholic theologian and priest wrote, Christ died for all people equally, and all are equally called to the inheritance of immortality. We've, you've heard it said that uh, every, all of us are equal at the foot of the cross. No, you can't go to the foot of the cross and, and be different because we're all sinners. So well, he sinned more than I did. Well, who's, how can you know that? It's just sin, saints. Jesus didn't just come to save us from our sins, but he came to save us from our sin. All right, now let that sink in. Erasmus is saying to us, and James is saying to us with this letter, do not show partiality to persons according to their value of their worldly possessions. Now, every one of us sitting here, if we're honest, we have done that. We may have done it today. So James is addressing this issue of making distinctions. Making distinctions among God's people based on their rank or their influence. This refers to favoritism that's shown on the basis of status in society. What it is, is when we do this, when we relate to someone with distinctions... What it is that we are regarding the eternal, the external, not eternal, the external circumstances of a person. Our, our approach to a person is governed by the external circumstances. I told you a few weeks ago that one of the big problems that we have with Christians, and that's everybody in this room to some degree, and other Christians to a greater degree, but we have a big problem with dealing in externals. We, we, we want to develop and find externals. We want to find a law or a rule 
or something that's external that we can say, well, you, you ought not be talking like that because there, look right there. Instead of, as James said, receiving the implanted word and let it do its work inside and out. External circumstances. And what we do is we see a person and we're not just, I don't think, I'm not going to limit that to just wealth or lack of wealth. We see a person and we relate to them based on something other than what we should relate to. He gives a real example here. He gives a, a valid example. And one of the reasons that I think he's particularly addressing how we deal with one another as Christians is because he deals with uh, dealing with a church service. He said that when a poor man comes into the meeting and then a rich man comes into the meeting, well, that's gather. That's like we're gathering here today. And you treat one different than the other. It's it, human nature. It shouldn't be, but it's human nature when you see, when you deal with two people and one seems to be particularly wealthy and one is not. It's just human nature that you might naturally be drawn to the one who's, who seems to be wealthy. Uh, thank God for those of you who can resist that and deal with people equally. I'm try, i got two stories on which one I want to tell. Okay, y'all got something in the oven? 40, 45 years ago, some of us were going to make a trip to Leesburg, Florida, and uh, meet with a guy named Don Basham and some other folks, Lee, uh, Dick Coleman, some other folks. We had talked about it for some time. I was associate pastor of a church. The pastor, we had talked about it. We were going to do it. We were going to investigate this group of people. Uh, and uh, so we had talked about it and kind of started planning on it. And then, let me just say this the nicest way I can. His wife got scared because they were building a house, parsonage. This is 1977. The house was $80,000. Well, today you couldn't buy an outhouse for that. But in 1977, or a tank of gas, uh, that was a lot of money for a house. And she was afraid that we were going to stir things up and they were going to lose some tithes and they were going to be able to pay for that house. Now, he's in heaven. She's not. She's not listening to that whole thing. But anyway, he always liked to call everybody Doc, and he surely called me. Hey, Doc, we're not going to do that. We're not going down there. Well... I was a grand total of, I think, 21 years old, 22 years old. I don't remember what I said to him. But anyway, I said, okay, we're not going. There was a gentleman that we had become friends with who who had come to our church some. He was a Presbyterian man, and and ultimately we got to be real good friends with he and his wife. He was, our, he was Jason and Adam's uh, pediatric dentist, I guess that, that's the terminology. And so we were at the Christian bookstore local close by one day, myself and this pastor, and I don't remember who else was with us, and we ran into this guy's name. He's in heaven, too. His name was, what was his name, Dr. Charles, Dr. Charlie. Anyway, we saw him. And uh, he said, uh, hey, I heard you guys were thinking about going down to Florida and meeting with Don Basham and some folks. Remember, it had been canceled. 
What do you think? What do you think this guy? He's in heaven, so cloud of witnesses. What do you think he said? Yeah, Doc, we're going. You want to go with us? Now, why do you think he said that? Come on. He had money. Dr. Bush, Dr. Charles Bush. He shared with me one day, he said, I can't buy anything. He he wanted to buy some property near us, and he said, I can't buy. I have to send someone anonymously to go buy the property because as soon as they hear who I am, price goes up. The other story is not so close to home, but we were in a, guess where we were in a Mayberry meeting, guess, you know, you probably figure that out. And, and uh, they were doing a Mayberry Bible study. And one of the guys speaking told a story about in his church, it's a true story. They had hired a, a, a new pastor, kind of young, wasn't a teenager or anything, but he was a younger man as a pastor to come to, it was a Baptist church. Only Baptist church would do this, I'm sure. But Sunday morning, the uh, church members showed up. Evidently, it was a fairly large Baptist church, but they showed up, and there was this uh, homeless guy sitting on the steps, needed a bath, big old long beard, hair, just, I mean, clothes were tattered, and he's just sitting on the steps. And as people would come in, of course, they'd walk around him and turn up their nose at him. And ultimately, they called the sheriff's department. To get rid of this homeless guy. But they, they, one of the deacons finally got a hold of whoever had called, said, hey, call him back, tell him, never mind. So in a few minutes, out from the stage, onto the stage walks this homeless guy. Pulls off the wig, pulls off the beard. He's their new pastor. And they had made a judgment based on what he looked like. I'm sure that started off their first Sunday really well. <laughs> he might have got voted out the next week. I don't know. And James is writing this because this happens. This, is, this was in North Carolina in the Bible Belt, which may be the worst place for that to happen. And if we don't watch it, we relate to people I want the Lord to help me with this. We relate to people on the wrong basis. We relate to people, again, based on what we determine or predetermine about them. And I want to go beyond uh, wealth and and poverty. I want to go beyond that. Because we, we deal with people on all sorts of criteria. And we make determinations about people based on all sorts of things. And I'll just tell you, most of the time when we do that, we do it wrong. You have to ask yourself, if God has you involved with someone, whether it be in a church setting, a small group, whatever, neighborhood, on what basis does God have you involved with that person? What basis in your heart is that being done? And is their income level, does it matter? Does the way they dress, does it matter? The the political affiliation, does it matter? I mean, you go down the list. Or or can we uh, resist 
making predeterminations based on externals. All those are externals. And if God has you involved with someone in whatever situation you're in, it, the reason that he has you involved with them is because the old TV show, Father Knows Best, he knows what he's doing. Now, I've said many times, and, you know, we got some folks that aren't here today. I heard some, I heard some ladies went to the beach this weekend. How dare people go to Florida and miss church? Oh, that's what we did last week, wasn't it? Okay. <clears throat> I can tell you this much. If they get in that water, they won't be there long. Ooh-wee. But if you were given the task of choosing the members of this congregation, you wouldn't choose half the people sitting here and the ones who would be sitting here if they hadn't gone to the beach. You wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that either. He didn't ask us for a vote. He puts, he puts this thing together like a patchwork quilt because he knows what he's doing. It's not based on anything external. Now, you can't avoid externals. You can't ignore externals, but you can't do anything on the basis of externals. And James is addressing this, and the reason he's addressing it, obviously, it was a problem. And is he using a theoretical situation when he says the poor man and the rich man come in and you show preference to the rich man? Or is he addressing an actual instance that happened? I don't know. There's 12 different locations. And then he says, which gives us our title in verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, which says you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. The royal law is simply the law according to the king. To my knowledge, and, and I certainly stand to be corrected, to my knowledge, this is the only place in the scripture where the law is called the royal law. But it's the law according to the king, our king. According to the scripture, which is interesting. And of course, as you see on the screen, he's getting that reference from Leviticus 19.18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's interesting that in Leviticus, it, it, then it ends with, I am the Lord. Now just, listen to that. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. In other words, you better hear this. I'm not your sugar daddy. I'm not your boyfriend. I am the Lord. Love your neighbor. We'll get back to that in a moment. I love it when he says, if you fulfill this royal law, you're doing well. You're doing well. I don't know if that means most people don't. I don't know what that means. But he's addressing the idea that favoritism and discrimination are violations of the kingdom law of agape, of love. It's a violation of what God set forth in Leviticus. It's a violation of what Jesus said. It's a violation of what the apostle Paul wrote. Back to Erasmus, he said this, one who loves their neighbor does not measure the neighbor by the extent of his power or the size of his wealth 
or the degree of his nobility, but to the extent to which they abound in divine goods. Everybody say divine goods. Divine goods. Do not measure your neighbor by their, the externals, but by what they have internally. Your divine goods that you possess today cannot be seen with the naked eye. The divine goods that you walked in here with are internal. They're part of who you are. And what you possess, because you have God's DNA in you, you have God's Holy Spirit dwelling in you, you possess, say it again, divine. Divine goods. Regardless of what your externals look like. Paul addressed this in Galatians when he said, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. I, I guess Paul couldn't count, but it's more than one word. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another... Watch out that you are not consumed by one another. And I think this is why, again, when we get to chapter 4, it will be very clear. But, of course, you, you might want to read ahead. You, you can't do that. There's no law that says you can't. But what he's addressing is this: that evidently people were biting and devouring one another. He uses the word in chapter 4. He uses the word murder. The whole law is fulfilled here. <clears throat> Remember when Jesus said, <clears throat> excuse me, when he said, the greatest commandment was for you to love the Lord God with everything you got. That's the Granger paraphrase, I know. Love the Lord your God with everything that you have and everything that you are. And he said the second greatest commandment is like that one, is to love your neighbor as yourself. And then he said all of the law, depending on the version you read, all of the law depends, King James says hangs, on these two commandments. And what Jesus is saying to us is that if we can somehow abide by those two great commandments, we won't need the rest of the law at all. You won't need the law because you fulfilled it, all the law. The whole law is fulfilled. You shall love your neighbor. This is obviously not just your next-door neighbor or the person who lives across the street. It includes those folks. Remember the good Samaritan. He's walking down the road and he sees a man lying in a ditch that's been beat up by robbers. Well, that's obviously not his next-door neighbor because he didn't know who he was. But it was his neighbor. Remember, it started with the, the lawyer saying, hey, what, who is my neighbor? And Jesus said, well, let's give you an example. So whoever God has you engaging with or in touch with, whether they live in close proximity to you or not, that's your neighbor. Love your neighbor. In Leviticus, the word for love is hesed. I can't say it like I'm supposed to. A good Jewish person can say it better. Hesed, C-H-E-S-E-D. And in New Testament, of course, we know the word agape. And they both mean an unconditional non-emotional commitment to somebody. 
There is zero emotion associated with agape. Now, there's plenty of, there's plenty of feelings and emotion in the scripture. Brotherly love in the scripture is to have an affection for someone. And too often we confuse brotherly love with agape love. And what Paul and James are both, which is interesting because people will try to have them arguing with Let me just say this. Martin Luther didn't like the book of James. Uh, he, he, he didn't say it, but he inferred he didn't think it should be in the Bible. But Martin Luther was praying to Mary right after he got saved. So I guess one day you can get straightened out. Oh, boy. Y'all got quiet on that one. Agape is an action word. Agape is a commitment that has nothing to do with how you feel. Okay. Love your neighbor. Look at verse 13 on the, put it back on the screen, William. Verse, he said, love, through love, watch the next three words. Serve one another. It's an action word. Agape manifests itself in action. You can't just say, I agape you. And, you know, I love you. And I'm not going to do the rest of the beer commercial. Y'all know what. Agape moves you to an action. And agape is a commitment that you have to someone based on nothing. (laughs) It's unconditional. There are no conditions when you love the way God loves. When it says God so loved the world, he gave his son, there were no, there was no conditions there. He just loved us. And of course, you heard me say, not based on our worth, although we have some worth in him. Not based on, based on our goodness, because there, there's none righteous, no, not one. But his love towards us actually was based on nothing with, to do with us. It's to do with him and his nature. It was his nature that caused him to agape us. And he didn't do that based on what our response would be. He wasn't saying, I'm, I'm going to send my son to the cross and I hope they respond. He did it because of who he was, which is a good lesson, saints. We need to do what we do because of who we are, not because of someone else's response. I would have heard an amen there, but nobody said one. We, I want us to understand that James is, is instructing us and instructing them, fulfill the royal law. Love your neighbor. You may not feel a thing for them. There's a lot of people that I'm connected to in the Lord that I don't like very much. Just be honest. You know it's true. Don't act like I'm the only one. You're looking around this room right now. (laughs) Yeah, I know what you're talking about, so-and-so, yeah. But there's a difference between liking someone and, and giving someone agape, you can love someone that you don't like. I wish you'd get off of that. Well, I think this is what James is after. He's after with these folks and he's after that with us. How are we dealing with one another? Or, or is our, are our actions toward one another based on something other than the intrinsic value 
of God in that person? Is it based on something other than that person being created in the image of God? Well, then he finishes up the very last verse of this passage. Mercy. He said, judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy, and mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs without mercy to one. Judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Once again, we're dealing with human relationships. We read this Wednesday night in our our small group, our home group, and I told them, I said, I'm going to read these again, if I can ever find them in this Bible. You're familiar with these verses, but maybe you've heard them in other contexts. Jesus said, be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not. And you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and that will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap, for with the measure you use it will be measured back to you. What is the context that Jesus is talking about in those verses? Especially verse 38, given it shall be given. What's the context? You go back to verse 36, be merciful. What he's saying is, if you want mercy, show mercy. If you don't show mercy, then when God deals with you, he's going to deal with you with no mercy. Now, I'm not saying for a minute that that means you've lost your salvation, because I don't believe that. But can we can we get beyond just just uh, getting saved and going to heaven? Can we get beyond that? I mean, you've heard me say, I love what Bob Mumford said. You know, Christian, going to heaven, you don't have anywhere else to go. When you die, you have to go to heaven. There's nowhere else for you to go. So that's a settled deal. But I don't want God judging me now without mercy and it's a promise you say standing on the promises of christ no he's the promise is no forgiveness no forgiveness no mercy no mercy and you can flesh that out however you want to with all but i'm just telling you what the scripture says and the fact is when he makes this statement that mercy triumphs over judgment this is this sums up the implications of all the previous verses. He's taken all these verses about dealing with people with partiality and personal favoritism and what basis are we dealing with people, and he's going through the whole thing in the royal law, fulfilling the royal law by loving your neighbor as yourself, and he's summing all that up by saying, if you will deal with people with mercy, you will receive mercy, but if you don't deal with people according to mercy, you're going to, you're not going to receive mercy at judgment, but mercy overcomes judgment. And the judgment that God might have, I don't mean judgment in the, Lord help me. 
Do we understand that judgment is God's mercy? Do we understand that when God judges you or judges a nation, the intention of God is for you to come back to him? He's, he's, in, he's not intending to eliminate you or crush you. If he crushes you, that's, he wants to get some wine out of you, I guess. But, but when God judges you, his intention is for you to repent. That's why it's his mercy. And we hear the word judgment. We, we see fire breathing and angry and trying to wipe us off the face of the map. That's not it at all. But he says mercy triumphs over judgment. And in our relationships, mercy should triumph over judgment. And we should be merciful towards others because we want mercy. We want mercy in every dealing that we have. And if we want that mercy... Go back to Luke 6.30. I know people quote Luke 6.38 all the time. The prosperity people do about money. And I'll tell you that it's not unbiblical or it's not hermeneutically inaccurate to quote that regarding money, but that's not what Jesus was talking about. You see the context. He wasn't talking about money at all. He's talking about mercy. Give mercy and it shall be given to you. Press down all you know, the whole verse. Merciful. I want mercy. You know why I want mercy? Because I need mercy. Flawed human beings. Somebody said, why why do bad things happen to good people? Well, I heard Dr. Adrian Rogers answer that one time. He said, well, the answer is there are no good people. And I just quoted it a while ago. Paul wrote it down. There are none. Everybody say none. We're not talking about a Catholic lady. We're talking about none, N-O-N-E. There are none righteous. No, not one. Which means even more that we need to be merciful towards others. I'll finish with by quoting the Lord Jesus. He said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. And those that fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you are doing well. Stand with me.